Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Small Giants by Bo Burlingham, the companies that choose to be great instead of big. When we talk about companies, we generally group them into three buckets, big, getting big, and small. Mm. But this book found a really strange type of company that doesn't really fit any of the traditional buckets. Definitely not the buckets of, uh, that are covered in all the books that we read, because some are actually tiny and growing in unconventional ways. But then there's also some that are relatively large, but have chosen not to grow at all, and then some that are actively shrinking their own operations. So it doesn't really sound like any of these companies could go in the same bucket, but Big Bo's found a new bucket for these. He's found a new bucket, and the wrapper of this book's phenomenal because uh, a lot of the other books out there, they're really hidden from the big business books just because they're not as easy to find as your big corporations. Of course, the book that comes to mind, right, is uh, is Jim Collins and what he covers in his suite of books, including Good to Great, right? Yeah, Good to Great, In Search of Excellence, Built to Last, all these big, massive public companies are kind of the heroes of these books um, because obviously they're the ones that you can get all the great data about to uh, find some kind of commonalities or make up some kind of commonalities between them all. And then if you think about it, all the books, the magazines, the newspapers, the TV shows, they're also featuring all the big public uh, glitzy companies that have been growing at massive rates because they're kind of the big success stories that everyone wants to talk about. Absolutely. And as, uh, as a lot of the time, if you're reading really broad, that you might find some ideas in books. That some books are totally contradicted in others. And this is definitely the case when it comes to this book because uh, he has found a lot of falsehoods that is covered in a lot of the other books that um, isn't true in the case of the small giants that he looks at. Yeah, that's right. Some of the uh, advice that we take as gospel that applies to big public companies and we think it applies to any company is not necessarily true. One of the big falsehoods is that businesses must grow or die. Now, that is definitely true for public companies. They need to show a steady increase in sales, profit, market share, EBITDA. They need to keep their shareholders happy. Any sign of weakness, any sign that they're not going to grow, then investors take off. They start selling their shares. The stock price plummets, uh, and that just gets worse and worse and worse. But thankfully, there are thousands of private companies that don't have to go through this grow or die. They don't grow, but they also don't die. The second uh, falsehood, we're going to have a whack here at um, positioning and uh, mm. 21 or 22 irrefutable laws of marketing, if I mm. got that correctly. But uh, he says that there's a famous idea out there and it was probably propagated most by the CEO of General Electric, uh, Jack Welch. He says that he chooses only businesses where he can be number one in the niche and that's the only place where he can be because if you're number two in any product category, then you're going to die. That's right. And it's big probably, business again, not, yeah, not you personally. Not you. And again, that, that probably makes sense for some big public companies that need to just go for the big industries where they can dominate. But obviously, it's pretty hard to do if you're not one of those massive businesses. Falsehood number three, the concept of getting to the next level, which probably every book out there. But however you phrase <laughs> this, next level um, almost always means more sales, more revenue, more this, more that. And um, you know, you're on the treadmill of more the whole time with your business. Yeah, that's right. That's not true that you have to go to the next level. Uh, there's also a lot of confusion, a big falsehood around shareholder value. For public companies, there's one specific definition of shareholder value, and that's the price of the stock, which is meant to be a representation of the net present value of future cash flows and dividends. And we assume that that's how you know all businesses should operate. You should always be judging the value of a company based on how much money it's making. But, of course, that misses a whole bunch of other stuff. If you're in a small private company, then money isn't everything. That's it, mate. And that's what the shareholders profiled in this book have totally other priorities. Like your big um, you know, uh, uh, public companies are all about your quarterly earnings per share. But for these small giants, 
there are a lot of non-financial priorities in addition to their financial ones that they look at. Yeah, money is not their only goal and it's not even their top goal. They've learned that um, they've got a whole bunch of other goals. They want to be great at what they do. They want to create a great place to work. They want to provide great service to customers. They want to have great relationships with suppliers. They want to make great contributions to the communities that they live and work in. And they also want to find great ways to lead their lives outside of their companies as well. Yeah, they've learned things like that achieving these goals often means not taking in outside investors and not growing too fast. Um, these companies have chosen to stay private and be closely held, right, to have their own ownership and um, you know have that control uh, to choose other things other than just uh, growth for the sake of growth. Yeah, in return, they get they get the important things. They get control and time. And uh, Big Bo's made an equation here: control plus time equals freedom or more precisely, the opportunity for freedom. It means they get to choose how they want to operate their businesses, how they want to live their lives. Big Bo, he calls these companies small giants. A lad named Fritz Maytag, he once bought and took over Anchor Brewing as CEO in 1965. Uh, Anchor's a great beer that's around today, right? It is the normal Anchor beer. I assume so, yeah. No, I've never had Anchor beer. I'm sure I have. I don't know. I remember <laughs> it rings a bell. But I don't know if they've made it to Oz, mate. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> maybe they have. I maybe they. But they were the premier micro brewery in America in 1965. It was a super successful business, but when it hit in the 1990s, it was the future of the company was now at a crossroads. And Fritz, uh, he had to make a call here. Yeah, Anchor was founded in the 1800s, and they kind of got famous off this one beer, the Anchor Steam Beer. Uh, but they kind of nearly tanked it. And then Fritz came along. He loved drinking it as a, I was going to say, as a kid. Maybe not as a kid, but as a you know teenager and as a young bloke, he liked to drink it a lot. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to buy this company and try and turn it around. And uh, he was able to kind of bring it back from the brink of extinction. He kind of uh, brought back the Anchor Steam beer to popularity. And then they also created a whole bunch of other beers, the Anchor Porter, Liberty Ale, Old Foghorn, and Christmas Ale. And uh, actually, he became so popular in the 1970s that they literally couldn't keep up with demand. That's right. So, in 1965, when uh, when he bought it, they made 600 barrels and then he was kicking ass. 1973, uh, grew up to 12,000 barrels, also that 20x uh, in the space mm. of eight years. Not, not bad by Fritz. And it was going so well and people were loving these beers that the Nevada distributor called to say that, hey... Uh, he'd been contacted by MGM Grand Casino and the CEO, loved the beers, a uh, big fan, and he wanted to serve beer on tap in every bar and restaurant in the casino. So, an insanely enormous initial order, plus it would give you the regular month refills for an indefinite period of time. So, a dream customer for many. It sounds like a sick opportunity to be able to grow to a massive uh, casino that's going to buy Heaps and heaps and heaps of all of your different beers every single month. It'd be like, man, this is an incredible opportunity. But Big Fritz, he said no. He said, well, the only way we, we're literally at capacity. We've, we've got this massive national recognition. Everyone's banging down our doors. I've actually had to start rationing beer. People want to buy more and I have to say no because we can't make enough. So he said the only way I could literally fulfill this contract with his new casino would be to shortchange everybody else who's already buying from me. So... I'm just going to have to say no. I'm going to have to turn this down. This massive opportunity, I've got to say no to it. Yeah, there are ways he could have like compromised a little bit. Like he could have, you know, gone out of town and made new breweries and grown and grown out, you know, grown away. But uh, he believed it would sacrifice the authenticity of his products, and that was the main reason he bought the company in the first place. So it was torn between a few things, right? Desperate customers who are willing to buy 
anything he could give them <laughs> and uh, his own insistence on selling only the highest quality beer that he could make. That's right. Literally, if he had said, yeah, here's some Anchor, if he bought a beer from down the road and slapped his own label on it, people would have bought it because well, yeah. it was Anchor. Yeah. But Big Fritz said, no, nah, he couldn't do it that way. He also then, he considered raising a bunch of money, like doing an IPO or getting some uh, investors in so they could you know, build a brand new, bigger facility that they'd be able to make more beer and be able to satisfy the demand. But then he thought, is it true that every business has to grow or die? Like he thought, you know, it's either grow or die, so let's grow. But then he realized, actually, you know what? Maybe there are some other ways we can do this. Well, it is a bit of the unquestioned assumption, right? Which mm. he, he had the ability to question that. The way he did it, he brought like a bunch of his top employees in and just started having a bit of a workshop on what to do here and asking questions like, hey, what would the new investors expect from us? Uh, how could their demands change the business over time? Why are we in this business anyway? Is it all about the cash? Uh, what do we enjoy doing? Is it going to impact how we enjoy what we do? And what are our just personal goals in life? Yeah, it's an, it's a, as you say, it's normally the it's the unquestioned. People just say, okay, well, there's more demand, so let's grow and meet this demand and we'll have a bigger business. But then he realized that there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. It's not just you take on more money and you make more money. It's actually that there's going to be a hell of a lot more demands on your time. You know, Fritz didn't have the aspirations to take it to the moon. He was just pretty happy with how things were ticking all over. Uh, he wanted to be you know, small, prestigious, it was profitable, everyone was making money, everyone was happy where they worked. He said it was kind of like a restaurant. If you make the best restaurant in a city, it doesn't necessarily mean you just have to go and franchise it and then pop up in every street corner around the world. You can actually just have one really good profitable restaurant that, that ticks along and it's a nice source of pride and makes money and makes you happy. So they said, sorry, uh, uh, casino, we're not going to take it. And he flew over there to let them know that he wasn't going to do it. So they made the decision not to grow. And he was pretty nervous about saying no to people who just wanted to buy uh, heaps of his products, who loved his product. <laughs> and he was nervous about having to ration their, their stocks out. But they decided not to make it a giant company with all these giant changes and the differences that would come. And they were just happy just keeping things small and as they were. So the point is he had the freedom to choose. He had the freedom to build a company that he enjoyed, that he was proud of, that gave him a sense of accomplishment, uh, gave him a sense of fulfillment, it allowed him to lead the kind of life that he wanted as well. And that was really what he saw as the reason to go into business in the first place. Got another story here from a bit of a juxtaposition potentially. Mm. We've got Norm Brodsky. Um, it's where people fall into certain patterns of behavior that lead them to make the same mistakes over and over again, a bit like Groundhog Day and you know, less like the, the lead character in the movie. So Norm is familiar with this sort of thing, not just because he's seen people doing it, but he's experienced it himself with his own battle scars on the, on the field. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Big Norm's had an interesting ride. Uh, obviously, like he's in the book, so he turned out all right, but there was a point where he wasn't. His first business, 1979, was a messenger business, <laughs> which is uh, it's, it's strange to think about now that a, such a thing would be needed. But basically what they would do was they would get a message from someone, they'd print it off, they'd walk it down the street and give that message to somebody else. Mm. <laughs> Pretty good. Massive. But the thing was... Uh, wouldn't Norm, work today, I don't, think. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think you could start off a messenger business today. But Norm was killing it because they had the first computer. They could digitize this. So they weren't just doing handwritten notes. They were printing off notes so it was far easier for everyone to deal with him and he basically could get any customers he wanted. And then so you know what Norm did? Norm was like, you know what? I want a $100 million business. Oh, yeah. There was no thinking behind that. There was no reason why uh, other than the fact that he could then say, I'm making $100 million bucks in revenue each year. So, you pursue the old uh, growth by acquisition, um, taking on more money, borrowing it and acquiring more companies to get to this 100 mil revenue eventually. Uh, but yeah, they got to 75 mil at one stage. They weren't profitable. 
but he made a final acquisition that got to him that 100 mil uh, revenue a year. So he got to his goal. Good He's on like, you. Fantastic. I've got a 100 mil business. We're making 100 mil in revenue a year. Problem was, when he got to the end of the year, he's like, oh, shit. There's 107 million expenses. <laughs> so all of a sudden, his $100 million company uh, that sounds great actually is losing him money. Yeah. So he filed for um, bankruptcy eventually, of course. And then uh, in 1991, they were down back to two and a half mil revenue and, and still at a <laughs> loss. Obviously, messenger businesses uh, went the way of the dodo there. Mm. He went, he, he grew, 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 grew. And then he got to the point where everyone realized well, that's like, a dodo. Got a, went extinct, did they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Alongside the, uh, the, like the, messenger, probably. the messenger businesses. Yeah, well, the point is, right, like it's not all about growth, growth, growth and he was pursuing revenue for its own sake but if you've got a small profitable business, then you know why not just keep it like that? Things can be really good and, you, and sometimes pursuing growth and higher revenues actually make you less profitable and make things worse counterintuitively. Thankfully, Norm learned his lesson. The next business he started, he realized that you know a hundred million dollar revenue business doesn't mean much if it loses money. He says you'd rather have you know a ten million dollar business that actually made a million a year type of thing. And then on top of that, he realized that in his pursuit of growing a hundred million dollar business, he'd actually missed the childhood of his eldest daughter. So when he started his second business, he determined, okay, I'm not just going to grow, 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 grow for the sake of it and sacrifice everything else in life. I'm going to realize that you know I've got other things in life. I've got another daughter. I don't want to miss her growing up too. You know, I've got a wife. She loves to travel, but we've only taken one holiday in 12 years. He realized that his ambition to grow had kind of overridden everything else that was important. So the second time around, he did it a bit better. So like a lot of stories in business books, it was a um, big success in the end. So I don't hear about the ones that weren't. But that's all right. But he kept the business small and he kept his freedom and he was profitable and he got to live his life. So the whole point here is uh, for small giants, it's all about having uh, fighting to keep the choice in your own court. You know, all successful businesses, you got enormous pressures to grow and they come from everywhere. But if you don't fight for your right to choose and um, hang on to the reins yourself, these other forces are going to shape your path for you and a lot of the time it's going to be to, to doom, death and failure. Most business startups, they go through a bit of a roller coaster ride. A hell of a lot of them crash and burn. Some have uh, happy endings. And along the way, successful companies, they go through the full range of pressures that cause entrepreneurs to lose control of their companies, probably generally at an early stage. Whenever they look like they're doing well, something else pops in and they lose control of, of their company. Yeah, there's a few different forces pushing you in, in different directions. Firstly, you've, of course, got your competitors. Now, um, you got the ones that you, t- you have today, the big ones. We also got the new ones on the block chasing you down. And, you know, on the review mirror, you got these these people moving fast. You get a feel, you probably feel like you need to grow to, to beat these assholes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You just, you, it becomes a bit of a competition. You want to win. And so someone else is growing. So you say, okay, I better grow as well. And growth often means losing control. You've also got your suppliers. They've kind of got a, a vested interest in seeing you grow because if you're selling more, then you're buying more off them. So the suppliers want to do everything they can to push you to grow as well. Yeah, psychological pressures, of course. Uh, natural tendency for a lot of people who just want to show that they're killing it in the world. So they just need to, to, to show growth and some signs of that. And then um, that's that's part of that pressure as well to keep that moving on. Yeah, that's right. When you see that every uh, every magazine cover has got a, someone who's grown big, then you think, okay, well, I've got to grow as well if I want to get on this magazine cover. That's it. Finances as well. You're pressured to grow your, your finances. The widespread assumption becomes uh, a big pressure to grow, especially when the personal pride and status and prestige are tied into this perceived size of the, the company that you own, right? Massively. And then you got, from a math perspective, you got financial pressure to grow as well. So you make it, if you're making 100 bucks 
revenue and your profits are three, so you want to grow by 10%, it's going to take you six to seven years to finance that by your own growth. But if you take on outside investment, you can borrow 20 bucks right now. It's going to allow you to grow by your 10% in one year, but now somebody else owns a little bit of your business. But the big problem with growing by 10% is that most companies kind of can't just grow by 10%. It's a weird thing to just grow by 10%. Uh, there's a story of a, a wine company here they were selling a thousand cases of wine every year, but it wasn't enough. They kind of hit their maximum capacity, similar to our anchor brewing story before. If you want to meet more demand, you can't just grow by 10% because the thing with a wine uh, company, they've got a farm, they've got a whole bunch of grapes. You can't just grow 10% more grapes in order to make 10% more wine. If you want to grow more wine, you're probably going to have to buy a whole new farm, plant a whole bunch more new grapes. It's going to cost you heaps and heaps and heaps of money to do this. And then you kind of just got to hope that people then catch up. You can't grow by 10%. You probably got to grow by 50% by buying a whole nother farm. Yeah, that's it. So you grow in, in whole leaps there. You can't just grow incrementally by 5% or 10% per year. Like a spreadsheet might say, you actually get yeah. to do those big sort of quantum quantum leaps. And the same goes for employees, right? Like it might, the next rung of mm. employees might make sense to have a different sort of team organizational structure and, you know, growing that incrementally might not work as well. You've also got the uh, the big forces to sell, right? And um, you know, built to sell that sort of uh, ideology mm. that you, you grow a company, do your IPO, and then you're driving a Lambo. Pretty <laughs> nice story. Pretty compelling story, isn't it? That's right, because uh, you kind of realise that there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, challenges that you're going to face in growing. So you may as well let somebody else do that. You can cash in on the on the potential and let somebody else have all the headaches. But then you kind of you know, if you if the point of building a business wasn't just to make money, but it was to you know create a team, create some kind of change in the world, create some kind of lifestyle for yourself, then by selling your company, you're kind of giving up all that as well. Got a story here from an absolute maverick called Gary <laughs> Gary Erickson and he had his business partner, who was probably a bit more a bit more of a normal brain on it, head <laughs> on his shoulders, better. Lisa Thomas, and each had a um, 50-50 split of this uh, company called Cliff Bar. So they'd grown the company pretty well to a point of 39 mil revenue a year and they had an offer on the table from a massive conglomerate uh, to buy them out for 120 mil. Ooh, now nice that's payday. A, that's enough. When you got 50-50, that's enough, I reckon. Mm. <laughs> 60 mil. That probably, for, for Gary and Lisa, it sets them up for life. Um, everything was done and dusted. The deal was signed. There was a handshake agreement. The last thing that had to happen was Gary had to go to the lawyer's offices and just sign the paperwork. Mm. But then on his way there, he just... He was just walking. He was pacing. He was stressing. He had a bit of. He was having trouble breathing. He was literally having a panic attack, and he realized that maybe he didn't want to sell this thing. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he wanted to keep it for himself. Oh yeah. So he didn't feel right about it, and he wanted to keep the company. Now he made that move. He said, "I'm not going to sell this bloody bad boy." But um, in the paradigm or the lens of just money, it's probably a ridiculous move <laughs> or a gutsy move, right? Yeah. But if you, you know, these small giants, not everything's about money for them. So maybe it was a logical move in that sense. I think it was fucking ridiculous. So do you. <laughs> I think so too. But anyway, yeah. Lisa thought it was ridiculous as well. So she's on our side and she wanted to run away as fast as she could. So she had to work out something to, to sell her share to, uh, to Eric. Yeah, Eric, Gary, 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 Gary Erickson. Erickson. <laughs> so basically her deal was obviously she had 60 mil on the table. So she said, well, you've got to pay me at least 60 mil. Um, and then there was also a one mil a year non-compete clause. And so Gary said, fine, we'll pay you out. I'll buy your half and we'll keep it. There was a big problem there though, was that Gary, he only had 10 grand in the bank at the time. First, he tried to borrow 50 mil from a bank and they said, no, no way, champ. Then he looked at mezzanine financing, which is kind of the, the row belong, row be, rung, be, 
<laughs> road below the <laughs> rung. Rung below, below the road. <laughs> Whatever I was trying to say there. Not helping you there. <laughs> but it was a much higher interest rate. And he was saying, okay, fine. But they said, no, we're not giving you the money either. And so eventually he came up with a deal with Lisa. He was going to give her 15 grand up front, 42, uh, sorry, 15 mil. mil up front, 42 mil over the next five years. He had to go and borrow this 15 mil at 23% interest. And he wouldn't even own the company until he'd fully paid her out. So she still owned a third of it. And so it was, a, it was a big mess. But Gary said, you know what? I want to keep this company that badly that I'm willing mm. to go through all this shit. And again, surprise, surprise, how did all this work out? <laughs> Mate, they just kept growing and growing and growing. Worked out pretty well. <laughs> Worked out pretty well, as you'd think in this book. Within five years, they doubled from 39 mil to 92 mil because of exactly because of that reason, because he, he bought her out. Is that, is that right? Just yeah, then? that's right. Well, he stuck to his values and, and didn't let the outside investors come in and spoil the cake that he made. Um and you know, expand the the workforce in the wrong way. So again, he was able to hang on to that control, and because of that, uh, the company was end up being more successful. Bit of a roll of the dice. Could have gone either way, you could say. <laughs> but you know, again, the old narrative. It's uh, it's a good it's a good one here. There's another company here, Real Precision Manufacturing. Now they do a whole bunch of motion controlled products, tiny little things. So for example, like the little tiny hinges on your laptop that you can't even see, but it makes the lid be able to open and close very smoothly and easily. And they had a whole bunch of different things that would come along their desk, different projects, different ideas of how they can uh, apply these little tiny hinges to different products. So a design firm had come in and hired Rayal to develop a new hinge for some point of sale display box to be used at convenience stores and trade shows and um, it was you know a pretty normal normal design it seemed but it turned out this box they were going to work on was used to sell cigarettes and Arnold who was one of the designer dudes he had a strong reservation about being involved in promoting the use of a product that's eventually going to kill people. Yeah, it was a pretty you know middle rung or even below middle rung old Joey Arnold here, but he said, you know, I don't think I'd want to do this because it's for cigarettes. Like maybe if it was for chips or pretzels or chocolate bars, he probably wouldn't think twice about it. But because it was cigarettes, it was really disturbing him. So he kind of brewed on it internally for a while. Then he spoke to a couple of colleagues. The colleagues also shared those concerns. Then he spoke to his wife. She kind of said, yeah, you probably want to have a second thought about this. So eventually, old, uh, what was his name? Joey Arnold? Yeah, Joe Arnold. He went to the salesperson who had sold this job and said, um, Strom, the salesperson, he said, Strom, not so sure about this. I don't think we should do it. Yeah, and at this time, there was the pressure was on. Uh, sales were down badly and uh, the employees recently took a 7% pay cut and senior managers took a bigger hit at 12 to 16%. So they were counting on the sales company bringing in new work. They got an awesome new opportunity on the table and it was, a, again, a big call to make. Are we going to mm. choose the money here or or not yeah when the pressure's on and everyone's you know the sales team's getting pushed you know make more sales make more sales we need more money all the employees are looking around at the sales people thinking well we just took a pay cut you guys need to work so we can get our money back and then he's got this massive project and one of the guys in the on the factory floor saying yeah i'm not so sure i, don't, I want to do this everyone was uh it's probably a little there was, there was a fair bit of pressure brewing so they went to the ceo big bob the ceo uh, they told him the story. They said, okay, we're, you know, we're under pressure. We need more money. Here we've got this opportunity, but one bloke doesn't want to do it. And then Bob said, you know what? This is a pretty interesting story here. I'm, pretty, I'm curious to see how you guys work this out between yourselves. 
<laughs> which is an interesting approach for the uh, the CEO to do. And the CEO just they showed them the door and said, "Good luck, guys. Well, mm. um, tell me what you decide." Yeah, well, that's uh, it's a big a big call from the, the top dog. And so in the end, the Real company and team members realized that the discussion wasn't anything to do with the hinge or the project or the ethics of selling to cigarette manufacturers. It's a bit more meta than that. It was about trust. Yeah, did the team members all trust each other to work together to find some kind of solution for the company? Did they have the confidence that everyone was operating in the company's best interests? For that matter, did the management trust uh, everybody to work it out by themselves rather than coming in and micromanaging? You know, most people would probably think the CEO's job is to make the tough calls, but Bob, the CEO, said, you know what? The toughest call of all wasn't to make a tough call. It was actually to let everybody make the decision for themselves, to show them that, hey, we're not just going to come in and save the day. We've got to work together as a team here. You know, they were all about building this uh, small, giant company, which wasn't just where everybody was just a cog in the wheel. It was that everybody was working together to build this company. Yeah, a bit of an interesting leader here. He said it was his job to make the tough decisions. On the surface, you think it's all about him going in there to make the call. But the tough decision wasn't going in there and picking one side over the other. The tough decision in this case was to trust the employees to do the right thing for the company. Mm -hmm. It is a tough decision, I'd say, more Mm -hmm. so than actually making the decision. And so in the end, they decided not to do it. Um, Strom said, you know, Joe, are you going to quit if we do this project? He said, no, I'm not going to quit, but then I'm not going to be proud of it either because Joe used to go to his kids' show and tell or, you know, uh, uh, parent, what's it called in Parent teacher. No, it's not that. I don't know. Parent don't day. Know. Anyway, the, yeah, careers day. Careers day. They go in, the parents come in, they talk about their career. Joey wouldn't be proud about saying, you know, I made this cigarette thing and all the kids who go to the shop see this cigarette thing and see everyone dying from Siggy. So he said, look, I'll do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it. In the end, they said, okay, you know what? There's, there's more important things here. Let's not do it. We'll trust ourselves to kind of find some other solution here. So it has been noted that every new business out there represents a, an attempt by the person who started the company or the people who started the company to reorder the world in some way. And the great majority of founders go out there and do that uh, without giving it too much thought. Very few think about how far uh, beyond that initial change they're going to keep on going and keep on changing things. That's right. Probably at the start, you think about the longer term vision and not just about how you're making money, but what you actually want to do, what kind of culture you want to create. But then very quickly, you get into business and there's a lot of struggles, there's a lot of challenges. You need to work out, uh, are we going to make money? Are we going to survive? Is it actually possible? We've got this great idea. Can we actually make it work? And all these kind of challenges that pop up, you generally forget about the, the longer term culture, team building, mm. you know, vision building stuff and you just start worrying about money and are you going to survive or not? Yeah, exactly. So beyond at the start, it's all about survival but after that, um, a few things usually happen. So you might be overwhelmed by both problems and opportunities that you don't really get around thinking again about the bigger picture like old mate did earlier. Mm. So the founders, owners, CEOs of all the small giant companies, they stand out in part because of the extent which they have thought about and worked on those sort of questions. Yeah, not everyone comes up with the same answer. Obviously, the, the whole point is that you're creating your own unique thing. But the thing they did have in common was that they did take the time to kind of plan and build this. So this book, it presents another path that's often unnoticed or neglected. It is true that every book that we, we read... When you, you feel good when you're reading it, you think it's really relevant to you. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not. It's, it's relevant <laughs> to your big, huge corporations. Mm. And, um, you know, the folks on smaller companies probably makes more sense. They've got different sets of challenges. So, how good was the wrapper of this? <laughs> <book>? <laughs> Mate, the setup and the idea is fantastic. Um, 
and it kind of we we even had a name for that effect where you know you read a big business book and then you think that um, you're going to do everything in it because it all applies to you, but then you realize well it probably only applies to the top yeah. of the top, like of the level top five companies. leadership when you've got like three rungs of, of people <laughs> below you. It's like point one percent of the population. That's this right. is a good chunk. Any small business owner, this is probably you know in their in their hitting zone. Yeah, it shows that you know there's a lot of assumptions in business that probably are fed by these big business books. Um, that aren't necessarily true for all businesses. In fact, they're probably wrong for a lot of businesses. He says, grow or die, it's a false dichotomy. You don't have to grow and that means you're going to die. You can actually choose not to grow but still maintain a successful, profitable business. Same with the idea that bigger is always better. Bigger is not always better. Sometimes the gains that you get in terms of bigger, in terms of revenue, are well and truly offset by the loss of independence. And sometimes you can actually choose things more than just revenue. Instead, you can choose time and control which gives you freedom.